Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to Big Squid. My name is Justin Hamilton. And before we go any further, I'd like to welcome you specifically to the end of Season 1 of this podcast. This was originally just going to be a one-off, and then I've enjoyed uh, creating and producing this podcast so much, uh, new ideas sort of came to the fore. So it went from being a one-off to a Season 1. And uh, we'll, we'll see if the TV series does that. Uh, they've approached it as if it's a, uh, a one-off and then there, there's the potential for more seasons. We are definitely going to do more, and I'll tell you more about that at the end of the podcast. But uh, yes, we've finally, uh, you know, come to this moment. It's been a hell of a journey, right? Like, I've really enjoyed rereading and re-examining the, the graphic novel. And uh, I've loved the TV series. And for a while there, I was starting to think, do, do I like the TV series more than the graphic novel? And then I realised that's ridiculous. You can't compare the two mediums and you can't compare something that you're experiencing in the moment against something you've lived with for 30 plus years. So I love them equally. And, you know, I guess when you go into something... You don't know if you're about to make a terrible mistake. Like I just said, I'm going to commit to this and this is what I'm going to do. And you don't know. Like you you don't know if it's going to be any good. But I felt strongly that this was going to be awesome. And, uh, and it wasn't just blind faith. It was off the back of the team that worked on The Leftovers, which I thought was magnificent even if it didn't find a, a broader audience I thought it was a masterpiece and I thought it got better uh, with every subsequent season uh, when I found out that we had music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross I was like well this is fantastic I love those guys love Trent Reznor for a long time as well so that's uh, that's pretty great and then you saw the cast that was assembled and uh, having experienced uh, the, the work of Regina King in recent work, like The Leftovers, and in If Bill Street Could Talk. That was very exciting. And uh, the rest of the cast were fantastic as well. And then 
you thought about the people that were assembled behind the scenes, the people that I knew about and the work that I'd seen them do before. And then, you know, we got to discover new people who worked on it as well. And so I just, I just felt pretty confident that it was going to be great and it was better than great. It was, for me, pitch perfect. It genuinely... Like there, there were times where I would look around the room because I'd, I'd watch the episodes by myself and I would look around the room and think, am I, is someone gaslighting me? Like, what is happening here? Like, especially <laughs> the, the episode that finished with uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's version of Life on Mars. I was like, well, just stop it. Like, this is too much. And I look, I just uh, have been wrapped with how it's all turned out there. They knocked it out of the park, and it's also just crazy to think only a few months ago this podcast didn't exist, but here we are, 21 episodes in. So I thought I'd change everything up uh, a little for the finale, Uh, so just so you understand how this one's going to play out, uh, I will go through the last chapter of the graphic novel with you, Uh, I'll talk you through the story, I will share my thoughts with you, uh, tie some thoughts off that uh, ran through... Uh, the the rereading of the graphic novel and then we'll have uh, a last squid bit segment for this season and then I've got a chat with my mum about the HBO series and the comic and it was a lot of fun Uh, my mum has of course never recorded a podcast before and I have to tell you that she took to it like she really took to it did not make eye contact with me for pretty much the whole interview uh, because, as she said afterwards, she, she feared that she would have gotten the giggles. But uh, she's great. And because uh, she was so into the TV show and, and the, the segment of Mum Facts came about just because she called me after the first episode and was raving about it and throwing all these things in my direction. So I thought it would be fun to, uh, you know, we he- we've heard a lot of white men on this podcast talking about uh, what they think and uh, wouldn't it be nice to hear what a 66-year-old woman has to say about uh, the experience. And by the way, at the end, (laughs) I asked mum if she has any last thoughts and they were, (laughs) when I asked the question, uh, it was more, in my mind, something to do with Watchmen. But my mum goes 100% mum and just, just remember, this is a woman who has been a staunch vegetarian for 50 years. <laughs> and it is, oh, I just couldn't stop laughing at how perfect her final thoughts were. So uh, it's amazing. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it. Uh, after the chat with mum, uh, I'll come back to close everything off. I'll tell you when the next podcast will be released. And it's a one-off special, and I'll tell you what I'm covering for that. It's going to be, once again, a little different, and I'll tell you more about that at the end. Uh, while I think of it, my Adelaide Fringe shows are up and on sale. The new John Tildanimous play, Time is the Fire, and the stand-up show, And Hamo was his name, Oh, uh, You can go to the Fringe site to get tickets for that. They're both appearing at the Rhino Room in Adelaide. And the stand-up show will travel to Melbourne and Sydney. Very short runs, only six shows in Melbourne and a one-off in Sydney. Uh, I'm not sure if those 
uh, sessions are on sale, but uh, check out the Melbourne Comedy Festival and Sydney Comedy Festival site uh, for more details there. Okay, let's get into it. This is the final podcast for Season 1 of Big Squid. It is also the final chapter for the Watchmen graphic novel entitled A Stronger Loving World. And here we finally arrive at the final chapter of Watchmen. It's November 2nd, 1985, midnight. New York has been devastated by a wave of psychic trauma that emanates from the instant death of the fake alien Ozymandias teleported into the city. Dr. Manhattan and Laurie walk amongst the ruins, both wondering in their own way what could have happened while they were on Mars. Dr. Manhattan teleports the two of them to the South Pole. He follows a trail of tachyon particles to the source of the disturbance. While this is happening, Ozymandias continues to explain his hoax invasion plan to Rorschach and Night Owl. He explains that in order to save humanity from self-destruction, he cloned the brain of a powerful psychic, and he then had uh, geneticists create it on a much larger scale. This brain was given an alien look, and they programmed into the brain these horrifying images of more aliens so that the mental transmissions given off at the squid's death would affect anyone who managed to survive the initial psychic blast. This event would force all humans to end their petty wars and unite against a new, more terrifying alien enemy. As the media covers the aftermath of the alien attack, Adrian convinces his fellow heroes that if they expose the truth, humanity would return to its self-destructive ways, that by keeping the secret they were in fact saving the world. They question if this is the way forward and in the end collectively decide that even though Adrian created a fake attack that murdered millions, this was the only way they could maintain the peace. They all agree, except for Rorschach, who decides he will return to the world alone and reveal the truth. Outside, Dr. Manhattan appears before Rorschach can leave, and knowing there is nothing he can do to stop what is about to occur, Walter tearfully rips his mask away and tells John to do it. Dr. Manhattan walks away from his murder of Rorschach, serene, already lost to his own thoughts. He walks past Dan and Laurie asleep, naked and together. He smiles knowing they have each other, and sets off to find Adrian to have one last talk. Adrian attempts to justify his actions, but John isn't interested and decides he'll travel to a destination that is less complicated, and maybe he'll create life of his own. Before John can leave, Adrian asks if it all worked out in the end. John suggests that nothing ever ends and teleports away, leaving Adrian alone to contemplate what it all could all mean. Sometime later, Sally is visited by Laurie and Dan, who have assumed new identities. Laurie tells her mum that she knows that Edward Blake, the comedian, is her real father. She also explains to Sally that she has come to terms with the fact and bears no grudge. When Laurie and Dan leave, Sally takes the photo of the Minutemen and kisses the spot where a young Eddie poses. Life continues and New York begins to get back on track. At the new Frontiersman, the intern Seymour is given the job of digging through the crank files of letters that are often sent to the office. Near the top of the file lays Rorschach's diary. Seymour's hand hovers over it as his boss declares, I leave it entirely in your hands. 
A splotch of tomato sauce formed perfectly across his smiley face t-shirt. The chapter and the graphic novel finish with a quote from John Cale. It would be a stronger world, a stronger loving world, to die in. What a great ending. What an absolutely pitch-perfect ending. And I remember when I first read it, my eyes stared at that final panel for such a long time, wondering where the Watchmen world would go next. It was harrowing read as a kid, especially the opening pages that the reveal of the big squid spread out across that part of New York we'd gotten to know so well. So all those minor characters dead was just something really new to me in the, in the world of comics. I especially found the image of newspaper Bernard's dead body spread over the young Bernard's body to be in, in, so sad like it was just so it it really hit me and I know some of the people we've spoken to across the podcast have been dismissive of the minor characters you know they've said that they're you know annoying or they're a bit dreary but but regardless none of those characters deserve to die and this for me even when I was young was the point of seeing all that destruction Norm- normally things happen and then they're they're just numbers aren't they they're just they're just barely drawn people and here it was like oh no we've we've gotten to know these people there's a there's an issue of grant morrison's the invisibles where you see uh essentially a a throwaway character uh who was a soldier who is shot in a panel and that that's all you see of that character early and then he gets a whole chapter and you and you go through his whole life, and it's one of the first times that you start to question whether the character of King Mob is actually a good guy. And uh, once again, here I think you can see see the humanity that's written into this. While you have the absurd vision of the of the big squid alien that. That absurdity has resulted in the death of a lot of uh, a lot of people, a lot of fleshed out characters. And you know, over the course of what was it, eleven issues, we had a glimpse of their everyday lives, and now those lives are, are snuffed out because of one man's belief it was his destiny to save humanity. And this is what I find probably the most fascinating about Zack Snyder, who quite clearly reveres Alan Moore, but seems to miss all the small aspects that make his writing pop. And between this and Alan Moore's finale to Miracle Man, I, I don't think we're supposed to believe any of this is cool. Like, the Miracle Man finale in particular is like a horror story. It's got a villain that can't be stopped, and when the one opportunity presents itself to stop this ultimate evil... It's a terrible conundrum, like probably, you know, even like a more intimate uh, conundrum than the one that's posed at the end of Watchmen. If you've never read Miracle Man, they've been uh, reprinted and they are they are something else. Like they are really great and uh, Alan Moore finishes his storyline and then Neil Gaiman started and then everything went to shit in a handbasket. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Is that a saying? I've just anyway. It feels like hand basket. Maybe I threw myself by saying basket. Um, uh, but the the company went under, and then the rights were lost for a long time. And there's supposedly thought that uh, Neil Gaiman will finish his run. But you can get the Alan Moore run, and that tells a complete story. And it, uh, it's really worthwhile uh, checking out. 
I love Laurie having to remind Dr. Manhattan that while it might be exciting for him, that he has a level of uncertainty to deal with when they come back to see what's happened in New York. The fact is these people are dead and they have to find whoever is responsible. And look, I say this next thing knowing that maybe I'm projecting, but I wonder if Laurie is speaking on behalf of Alan Moore here, reminding the audience that this isn't something to celebrate. You know... I know Dr. Manhattan isn't celebrating the deaths, but he's so removed, he's celebrating the fact that he's uncertain of what's going to happen next. And uh, it feels like it's a nice reminder to go, I oh, know these were all fleshed out characters. These were all sort of people. So don't, uh, don't think it's, you know, uh, something flashy for you to, to just kind of think is cool and enjoy. Look, and once again, I might be reading too much into it, uh, as you know possibly that wasn't the intent at all but with all great art meaning can be applied and reapplied through the ages and uh, since we know comics after the the success of Watchmen and the Dark Knight uh, series by um, Frank Miller and Miller's Batman Year One and the Killing Joke comics thought oh well growing up is going dark and I feel like looking back on this panel it's f- or this section of the of the story, it feels like it's a warning for, for what's going to come in the future. Uh, back with Night Owl and Rorschach, still locked in their stalemate with Adrian, they ask how he would have gotten out of the situation with the fake attack on his life if the man had simply shot him. And Adrian tells him quite sincerely that he would catch the bullet. And it is... A fantastic drawing by Dave Gibbons when he shows the confidence of Ozymandias. Uh, it's just a—it's an incredible panel. There's no writing. He—he he just looks back and smiles, and this is the confidence of a man who could pull off an insane alien hoax to save the world, and they'd be better off believing everything he says in that moment because he just has a a confidence that is unparalleled uh, throughout the series. It's an interesting ending that does away with the usual superhero climaxes that most stories come to. You know, there's a little bit of action as Laurie shoots at Adrian and he does indeed catch the bullet. As I said, when you see that photo or that that picture of Adrian looking very confident, it's uh, it's a really good time to believe anything that he would say. But in Laurie's defence, she wasn't there to uh, (laughs) hear that whole chat. Um... Adrian even thinks he's destroyed Dr. Manhattan and in doing so destroys his pet Bubastus. And I guess if he was going to destroy New York and innocent men and women, I guess he'd be more than fine to give up his pet as well. But it's it's funny, Veidt even tells the remaining heroes that this is a new age and that this adolescent approach to the world is now out of date. Of, uh, of course, he hasn't destroyed John, who reforms and attacks the Vivarium from outside. And... In the end, the only way Adrian can win is to turn on all of the TVs and show the world uniting to tackle this sudden alien attack. And with the way we've seen the media used in the present, it is once again a a brilliant save by the smartest man in the world. Isn't it interesting, isn't it? Uh, It's uh, It really really is a climax of people uh, standing around and talking and uh, having to make make decisions and uh the the ultimate uh the ultimate weapon 
almost becomes a remote control that turns on TVs. So do you keep the lie going or do you take Adrian in? And this was a question my friends and I always discuss when talking about the series. I was very adamant that I would have taken Adrian in because, you know, I've been raised on superhero comics. <laughs> my sense of justice burned strong when I was younger. But as I get older, I understand why the majority of those present decide to live with the secret. In fact, I, I think this is possibly Rorschach's most heroic moment, to not compromise and decide he has to return to civilization to tell the truth. He's correct that Adrian is wrong, that there must have been a better way and he should pay for his crimes. And... Uh, yeah, it's interesting that this is his final moment. It's it, I, I guess it, we, we get that moment of poetry when in the HBO series Looking Glass, who in many ways was our stand-in for an empathetic version of Rorschach, knocks Adrian out and along with Laurie will return to the world for Adrian to uh, stand for his crimes. Everything comes full circle. The series and the graphic novel could easily be cut up like Burroughs technique and rearranged to form one big story that comes together and proceeds like clockwork. I've been dismissive of people throughout this podcast thinking Rorschach was cool, but in his last moments he is the most true to himself and to and he's the most true to a general sense of truth. And I guess if this is your last scene with him, well, I guess it would make sense that he could be viewed as uh, as as a cool hero. Maybe not in the lead-up, but uh, I, I do like that moment. Uh, two parts of the ending have stuck with me for years, and I was glad to see both of them addressed in the series. I have always wondered what happened when Dr. Manhattan went off and created life. I had little fan fiction ideas in my head for decades on what occurred in his adventures as he created life elsewhere. Uh, I was also fascinated by Laurie taking on her father's persona as a crime fighter, and I loved where the series went with Laurie because of that. The final scene with Sally alone kissing the picture of Blake uh, also resonated with me as a kid because I was still very confused by it all. But now, as a as a greying man, I get it. The world isn't black and white, no matter how much Walter Kovacs wants to believe it. The world is grey and it's insane and it makes little sense no matter how much you attempt to apply logic to all aspects of life. And this reread in particular has me seeing Sally properly for the first time it was like I needed real life experience to understand her and and I have a lot of feelings for the character this time through I wonder how I'll feel about Sally in another 20 years time when I'm when I'm around her age but it's uh rereading her character in particular has been the most mesmerizing of of journeys that I've had in this latest read of the comic yeah, imagine what I'll think in 20 years' time. Maybe I'll have to do a new podcast or there won't be t- podcasts in 20 years' time, will there? There'll be tel- telepathic cast. <laughs> I'll, be, uh, I'll just be thinking it and broadcasting it straight into your minds. Uh, I was lucky enough to interview Len Wein, the original editor of this comic at the Sydney Opera House a few years ago. Uh, Dave McKean and Grant Morrison shared the stage with Len and... It was interesting because Ween had a falling out over the giant squid because it was, in his terms, uh, a rip-off of an Outer Limits story. That's why Sally has the TV on and the Outer Limits episode, The Architects of Fear, playing as a tip of the hat. Moore stated he'd only known about the ending when he reached issue 10 and had already planned his ending. Ween thought that he stole it outright and resigned from editing the ending because of it. 
So who knows what the truth is, but I love the ending, the craziness of it all, the imagery and the choices that have to be made because of it. And I always thought the omission of the big squid from the movie adaptation made sense for runtime, but it kind of meant that the movie lacked the pulpy fun because of that decision. I think the series managed to um, keep some of those pulp aspects. Right, Lube Man? Lube Man gave us some uh, pulpy feel, right? So I was rapt to see uh, the big squid back in the series. That glorious eye, the awful beak, that slimy skin brought to life, a giant fake alien that lived with me for decades and ended up inspiring the title of this podcast when other titles felt a little too obvious. I loved it. In the end, Big Squid has uh, meaning for me, which is take a big swing with your ideas, no matter how daft they might be on paper. And this comic took a big chance. The series took an even bigger chance. And that's a good lesson to take into the new year as we come face to face with new challenges and goals. That's how I'm feeling about uh, Big Squid. And while you're having a little think about that, let's do one last Squid Bits for season one. The clock on the cover reads one minute to midnight, but by the time we turn the page, the hand has ticked over to midnight. There's a little piece of paper that has a strange number on it. Dave Gibbons said that this is a DC job number often added to the first page of artwork for a story. And what's strange is this is the only issue that has that number, so feel free to ignore it or add your own story to what it might mean. Maybe season two of the series could be all about that number. On page 7, panel 1, Laurie matches the image of the stone angel in the City of the Dead on cover, on the cover of issue 2. On page 8, panels 3 to 5, you see Laurie find Detective Fine's gun and places it in her bag. That'll be the gun that she uses on Adrian. Page 19, panel 1, the vision of the unborn child eating its mother is mentioned by Manish as part of the script that Shay has written. At the bottom of this page, panel 7, it has Adrian standing triumphant under the eyes of Alexander, who has just cut the Gordian knot. Note that Adrian's uplifted arms form the hands of a clock position just before midnight, with the seven knots between them. On page 20, you can see from panels 4 to 7, that the ink blot on Rorschach's face has ceased to move. On page 23, I wonder if that's because he's in shock with the way everyone acquiesces to Adrian's plans. On page 23, panel 4, John appears uh, when he teleports outside and stands on the dead frozen butterfly. On page 24, panel 3, Walter's speech bubble returns to normal with his mask removed for his final moment. On that same page, panel 5, the tunnel forms a smiley face. On page 27, panel 1, Adrian's dream recalls the story that takes place in Tales of the Black Freighter. Page 28, panels 2 and 3 is where you can see the Outer Limits homage. The idea of a fake alien invasion uniting the Earth has been used in other work as well, including Theodore Sturgis's Unite and Conquer. Harvey Kurtzman used a similar idea in the comic The Last War on Earth, and Kurt Vonnegut riffs on this in The Sirens of Titan. So I don't hold it against Moore that he stuck to his guns and, and didn't change it. Look, if anything, I blame Veidt for not being more imaginative as the smartest man in the world. Uh, page 30, panel 7, the red lip marks that Sally leaves on a photo leave another blood-red mark across the comedian's face. 
page 31, panel 2, we see the newspaper heading of RR to run in 88, our first sign that Robert Redford is on his way to become president. On panel 4, we see the new Vite perfume, Millennium, being advertised. And then panel 5 shows a newspaper heading about survivors experiencing terrible nightmares after the alien attack. So I wonder if a young Wade had anything to say to the press about his experiences. There's also a picture of Nixon and Gorbachev shaking hands. And as a little extra squid bit, in the real world, Ronald Reagan once asked Gorbachev if Russia would help them if they were suddenly attacked by alien invaders. And Gorbachev said they would. And Reagan iterated that they too would help Russia out if the same thing happened to them. These are the people in charge of the world. Doesn't it make you feel comfy? And the quote comes from John Cale's 1982 song Sanities, which was a track on the album Music for a New Society, which seems rather apt. Okay, let's get into uh, my chat with mum uh, <laughs> as, I, as I said earlier she um, I was I was a bit worried that she might be a bit you know uncertain or a bit nervous and she she was none of those things and she was ready to go so uh, I hope you enjoy uh, listening to uh, mum's thoughts on uh, on watchmen and uh, and a few other things and uh, as I said keep an ear out for the uh, <laughs> for the message she decides to leave us with. All right. Take it away, Mum. So we just finished watching uh, Jackie Brown, which was the first time you'd seen that film. Did you want to give us a review of what you thought of uh, that Tarantino film off the top of your head? Um, yes. I found one of his best... It was less hysterical than a lot of them. Yeah. It was less just for the boys than a lot of them. (laughs) And it had some depth. It had some subtlety. It had quiet moments. And it was freaking hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it's really funny. The uh, I had a feeling that you were going to enjoy it. Uh, It was one of those films that for some bizarre reason just kind of slipped through the cracks and so I didn't see it until uh, 2017. I only saw it in the last few years Uh, and I know that you can be a little bit up and down with him. So uh, I was keen for you to see that one because I had a feeling you were going to enjoy it a lot. Uh, Specifically, you know, it's a movie that uh, centres around a, a much older female protagonist as well, which I think takes you by surprise, right? Yes, yes. And she underplays her role very, very well. She's very subtle. Yeah. But strong. Yeah. Strong, strong, independent woman who's determined to do things her way. But she's, um, she doesn't screech about it. No. She's just very quiet and very calm and determined. And yeah, she, she, she has girly great. moments as well. Like, you oh, know, like trying out her outfits and she's yeah, got yeah. a bit of uh, <laughs> she's got a bit of fun confidence about her when when the girl sort of says uh, at the store, you know, I think she says the uh, the suit looks good and she's like, "Yeah, and it looks good on me." <laughs> like she <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's uh, she's got some real sass to her. Yeah. yeah. And 
Uh, knowing what was coming with Robert De Niro, because uh, I know you don't quite like, uh, you know, there's some De Niro performances that you enjoy, but you, you're not quite into the, the hyper-masculine ones. And I, I was enjoying how much you were enjoying his performance, knowing full well what he was about to do to Bridget Fonda that reminded you, oh, yeah, this character is awful as well. Oh, yes, I was furious with that. I was so angry. Poor Bridget, I liked her. I liked the fact that she seemed terribly intelligent and in yep. and on a certain level independent. Yeah. But what was she hanging around with these loser dickheads for? Like, seriously, what is wrong with you, Bridget? But having said that, I really liked her character and yep. I was hoping she'd, um, she would live at the end and that bastard. I know. Well, you know, you, you didn't and see I a death. And I knew it. I knew it. Oh, I knew it. Yeah. Because I saw his face change. Right. And I'd said to you, <laughs> I like seeing him a bit dumb and stupid and playing it quieter and more subtle. Yeah. And then all of a sudden his face changed and I thought, ah, oh, that's fucking De Niro. <laughs> there he is. He's back again with his mannerisms. And yeah. But you enjoyed him in The Irishman, right? I did. I loved him in The Irishman. Yeah. That was uh, – I, I felt like there was a bit of convincing for you to uh, take that on. But uh, once you get to the end of it, you go, oh, this was, uh, th- this was a very different type of uh, Scorsese, uh, De Niro yeah. production. Oh, well, I, I like Casino. Yeah, yeah. It's Goodfellas. Oh, I just loathe Goodfellas. Right. It's you. I, I think you're the person that, that loathes it. I'm the one. Yeah. I'm, I'm always prepared to stand alone. I just <laughs> – I hate everything about that film. So, um, just just everything. Like, like, what's the what's the main thing? What's the what's the main thing that sets off hating everything else? I think that Scorsese makes it very clear that these are bad people. Right. His intent is that they're bad people, and it's obvious in the film that they're bad people. But somehow. Somehow in the scripting or the filming or the editing, I haven't put my finger on what it is, Mm. somehow they come across as guys that your average jerk who only likes films like Independence Day and that kind of stuff look and go, I love these guys, aren't they awesome? And it's like, well, they're not bloody awesome at all. They're horrible people and they deserve what happens to them. And I don't, I don't like the fact that most guys love the film because they think it's awesome. So, so your that's what I hate about it. So, your criticism of it is, is it you, you think that there is a flaw in what Scorsese is producing because some people mistake it as uh, a celebration of those types of people? Well, you know what I wonder deep down. Yeah. I don't think it's conscious. Yeah. I wonder subconsciously because he grew up in that era. Yeah. He knew those people when he was a kid. Right. And because we look back on our childhood, well, apart from the shitty parts, you look back on a certain part of it, even if just the era, with an amount of affection. And I wonder if that seeps through into these films. Okay. Subconsciously. Right. That even though he'll say these are bad people and I'm making a film to show how awful these people were, but then a little bit of affection from him seeps in and all the numb nuts out there <laughs> who I consider to be idiots right who can't pick up on anything 
intelligent or intellectual or subtle, pick up on that affection and go, they're great. Right. They're great. Oh, I love them. Oh, didn't you love Joe Pesci? No, I hate Joe Pesci. Right. In that film, I just right. oh, I just wanted to I wanted to get a shovel and smash his face in myself. <laughs> you know, but, but I, like I, I think Goodfellas is uh, is a great film, but I I don't think any of those people are nice. Like I'm not oh, into horrible. any of them. Yeah, they're horrible. Yeah, it's uh, is it, do, did you really struggle with Wolf of Wall Street then? Yes. Yeah. That that feels I like the kind of score. I hated that film too. Yeah, as and soon the, as I saw it, I knew you'd struggle with that I one. I hated it. And yeah. the, do you know the only good bit about Wolf of Wall Street? Uh, was it Matthew McConaughey? Oh, yeah, he was gone. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yes, his little section with, yeah. his, with his chest tapping, yeah. heart tapping. You know, okay. you, you know yeah. he does that and DiCaprio saw him and said yeah, you should yeah, do yeah. that in the Put movie. It in. Yeah, yeah, No, no, no. Um, oh, Christ, of course I love that bit. But take that away. Right. That, that's a tiny little cameo bit. Right. As far as sustained performance, Margot Robbie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought she was fabulous. Yeah. You um, – you know, you were. Jonah Hill was good too. Oh yeah, really good. Yeah, he made, yeah. Poor guy made himself really sick snorting all that fake uh, cocaine. Yeah, no, I like we know cocaine's not good for you, right? But at least you get something out of it. <laughs> but when you're snorting just white shit for the sake of looking like cocaine, right? All you're doing is damage without having any fun. Yeah, I don't, I don't see the. <laughs> I don't see the point of that. <laughs> what is the point of that? I would say, how about I put my face down to the coffee table yeah. and you CGI something going up my nostril? Well, they can do that now. Well, do it. They could do yeah. that. Uh, you you were also um, a fan of Sharon Tate. Did, were you happy with Margot Robbie's performance in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was. Um, it was funny because we were watching The Wrecking Crew last night and the thing that I really underestimated was how she got her... Um, Got her walk down. She did because yeah. I don't know whether – I mean, I know Sharon Tate from when I was a kid. Right. And before we saw any films out here, she used to do soap adverts. You know how huge stars mm-hmm. don't do anything in America, but they go overseas to Japan or somewhere in Europe and they they do ads that they know Americans will never see. Yeah. Well, she came out here and was doing soap ads. And I don't know if it was – I can't remember now. I remember the ads vividly. Right. I remember her face and they had her with um, – because she's got, had beautiful eyes anyway. But they had her with oh, feathery eyelashes. She was just magnificent. So um, maybe it was Lux or Cashmere Bouquet. But I used to see her all the time in black and white. Yeah, and I loved her before I ever saw a film. But she wasn't walking in the adverts, right? Yeah, of course. So, <laughs> yeah. so I don't know whether that walk was an affectation for the character, right? And if it was, kudos because that, that was brilliant, or whether she just had a bit of a funny walk. But Margot Robbie got it down pat. Yeah, she got it down pat. It was fantastic. Yeah, the and film's shocking. Sorry, the film shocked me. Oh, the Wrecking Crew. It was a. It was a bit of a struggle. She's very funny in it, though. Like she's legitimately funny. Yeah, she is. Yeah, was. Yeah. Um, and uh, before we get into the Watchmen stuff, uh, even though he's not your type of handsome, uh, how good was it when Brad Pitt took his shirt off? Oh, in... hell yeah! <laughs> like I know he's not 
he's no, not no, your no, type, no. but it's well, impressive, isn't it? I like him. I, I'm just not into blondes. But I do um, – yeah, I like him. He's got a lovely face. Yeah. Um, but I can't stand blokes who think they have to look like a condom full of coconuts. Right. That bloody Schwarzenegger look. Oh, yeah. Dear God. That's too just, much. Oh, it's gross. Yeah. And – they look dreadful in clothes because the clothes don't fit right. properly. But when he took his top off, it was like, bloody hell, you're a, a man in his mid-50s who's just beautifully toned. No yep. fat, toned. You can tell there's muscle there, but it's not bulging. Because, and so what it did was it looked great because it looked effortless. Mm. If you've got bulging muscles, you know you've put effort in. Yeah, yeah. But he just looked like – do you know what he was? Because his character was casual, he just looked casually good. Right. But he bloody did look good. Yeah. He looked hot. Uh, the um, the girl that I was sitting next to in the cinema, I heard the popcorn crush between her legs when he uh, <laughs> took the shirt off. I was like, oh, yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> That. Yeah, I don't doubt that. It was quite a surprise because you you could tell in his clothes that he wasn't fat mm. um, or even really overweight. But you might have expected maybe a tiny bit of muffin top once the shirt came off. But yeah. Oh lordy, lordy! No, there wasn't. No, no, oh. it's super impressive. Oh yes. Was um the uh, he, he you you were a big Steve McQueen fan and everyone you know you always try to. Uh, you know, everyone likes to say it's this generation of this person. No one could be Steve McQueen, but uh, are no. there actors? Has there been any actors that have come along that you've thought have been close to his kind of uh, screen presence? I always wondered if it was a little bit Pitt in some performances. Maybe Pitt does laconic well. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. There was a certain, there was a certain something about Steve. Yeah. Um, the media had him pitted against um, Paul Newman, Newman. Yeah. Initially, and then Redford later, um, and Newman had he, had his own certain charm. Yeah. But there was something about Steve. Yeah. He was always like a naughty boy. He always had that little twinkle in his eye. Um, you know, like in Magnificent Seven, he, he had his little smart-ass lines, yeah. little quips that he'd just toss away as if they were unimportant. Yeah. Um, and of course, Thomas Crown Affair, and well, The Great like Escape, and that's what and, that's, all of them, and really. that's what you see Rick Dalton not be able to do when he's uh, daydreaming about being uh, his character. Rick and Dalton, he doesn't. Had no way of playing the cooler kid. <laughs> he so had good. No way of doing it. It was, uh, yeah, that was, that was fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, saying I'm a fan, sometimes it's like I really like that person. Yeah. Or I really admire or respect that person. Yeah. But I had huge, expensive, glossy coloured posters. Yeah. All over my bedroom wall of Steve. Yeah. Uh, oh, back yes. in the day. Back in the day. When uh, when, when you were younger, <coughs> you weren't a um, you didn't read comics, did you? Nope. 
there wasn't uh, like did you read strips or like comic strips or anything or were you just you like your mum used to from what I from what you've told me over the years your mum used to give you some pretty heavy books didn't she like didn't she give you books about uh, uh, oh, well, World War Two and yeah, yeah well so two things number one comics in my day were just like. Um, Daffy Duck and Donald Duck and whatnot. Yeah. And I'd watch the cartoons on TV and loved them. Yeah. But I didn't want to read comics about them. So there was nothing like you get now. Um, it's all, By the way, for anyone listening, we have the TV on in the background on silent and it's the King of Queens and Kevin James is jumping up and down in the nude in front of a uh, a, a lamp, lamp and you just had a moment of... You just did a little double take. <laughs> oh, my God, it's Kevin James. <laughs> oh, bless him. That's guts, although I bet he's got, um, I bet he's got undies on. Um, well, I would hope so. You would hope so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, no, we, do, we didn't have, like, uh, proper comics. Well, yeah. to, no, that's probably a lie. I only knew about Daffy Duck and, and Huey, Dewey and Louie. Yeah. But there would have been Superman and stuff, yeah. but I didn't know about them. Right. I didn't see them and I didn't mix with them. Right. So I knew nothing about comics except the lame stuff. And then the books for girls were <laughs> just crap right. about, you know, the girl's own adventure or whatever. And it was just lame shit that was like the – it would be – my generation's young girl equivalent of the film Beaches. Right. <laughs> Seriously. So, my mum was heavily into social justice. Yes. And I learned that from her. And when my grandmother or auntie or whoever would give me these horrible books, plus I was reading well above my age group. Right. And they'd give me stuff for my age that was like little girl stuff. Mm. And being the subtle person that I am, mm. I probably rolled my eyes <laughs> like a precocious little bitch. And my mother probably died a thousand deaths and thought, oh, please don't do that because she was so quiet and shy right. and decent. And so... I used to tell her, like, I hate that stuff. I yeah. just hate it. And I don't want to read it. And if you force me to read it, I can be done in five minutes. It's just rubbish. Yeah. And so I think I was 10, maybe 11, but it was, it was around t um, 10 or 11. She gave me two books. And one was called Five Chimneys. Right. That was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. about um, Auschwitz. Yeah. And said, this is what happened in World War Two. This is what happened to the Jews. Um, this is what Nazis did. It wasn't just Jews. I didn't know what homosexual meant. Right. Because, of course, gay didn't come in until the 80s. Right. So she said homosexuals and um, communists. And I thought, oh, I don't know what that is either. Right. But anyway, she and and gypsies all went into concentration camps. So she gave me, she gave me that book, 
And then she also gave me one called The Scottsboro Boys. Oh, okay. And I believe that's been made into a film now. But right. it was that was about black America. And it was about um, some young guys who were quite blatantly blamed for the rape and murder of a white woman. Nobody ever thought they did it. They were just scapegoats. Right. And it was, it was their story. Right. Um, very much like the hazing one in New York. I mean, yeah. completely different because this was, I think, back in the, in the 30s when right. things were, like, really tough. And so after reading those, I, I never really complained that I was bored again or <laughs> that I was being given rubbish. And yeah. so after that, I was being given books on... Um, you know, like uh, Bergen-Belsen and Mauthausen right. and all sorts of... I learned a lot about World War Two, put it that way. Yeah. And I learned a lot about slavery and basically she was just teaching me about injustice. I think everyone else in the family was just happy watching Bandstand or some <laughs> rubbish on TV. Yeah. And she knew I was the one who took after her. Right. And so when I complained about the rubbish, she just fed me the good stuff. Where did her sense of social injustice come from then? I don't really know. Yeah. I honestly don't know. I can't think who she would have mixed with. Right who could have taught her. She would have learned some stuff from her, her father coming from the Gorbals in Glasgow. Yeah. So his early childhood would have been tough. But I don't know where she learned about that. I think she was uh I think she was a very, very intelligent woman who had a great sense of adventure and um interest in knowledge and history, and I think she just taught herself. Yeah, right. That's interesting. An autodidact. Well, she must have been relieved because, <laughs> uh, you know, oh. knowing my aunties and uh, uncles. <laughs> well, she was probably caught between the two thinking, oh, this girl's going to be the death of me yeah. because she frightens me and she's got such a bloody loud mouth and yeah. she won't shut up. And she never hides her true opinion of things. And yet at the same time, she cares. Yeah. So, uh, so I want to I want to come back to this in a sec, but I just want to uh, get to. Um, so you went into comics. So when when I started reading comics, can you remember the first one that kind of uh, had an impact on me that you thought, oh, it looks like he's going to. I remember the first one that you were ever allowed to have because mm. I wouldn't let you have them. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I used to tell you they were trash. Yeah. Um, and it was when we went overseas in yeah. 81 and we spent a month in Scotland and then we spent, well, no, we probably spent five months, in, uh, five weeks in Scotland and then yeah. we spent a few weeks uh, travelling around the continent. Yeah. And somewhere in those travels, you saw a Thor comic. Right. And while I may come across as trying to make myself sound profound <laughs> with my intense love of social justice and doing the right thing and, yeah, I can also be shallow. I looked at the cover and I thought, 
Oh, wow. Thor looks really handsome there. <laughs> but he's blonde. I thought it's only a drawing. <laughs> what is wrong with you? And he's blonde and yeah. I'm not into blondes. Yeah. And yet they made him look so handsome on the cover. Yeah. I thought, what harm could it be? So to yeah, right. <laughs> so to shut you up, it's like, oh, I'm on it. so I just <laughs> said, oh, here, you can have this one. Okay. Because he looks handsome. Are you happy with Chris Hemsworth as Thor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where well, he doesn't on. look like that um, comic cover. No. But, oh, yeah, he's hot. Yeah. the uh, I feel like the co- comics cover, I'm not saying this person exactly, but more in the shape of the face. If I can rem- I vague I can't remember who the artist was, but I I feel like it could have vaguely been Mads Mickelson. You know the the high cheekbones. Yes, thin, but not not, not look- Mads Mickelson, but that kind of sharpness of definition, wasn't it? Yeah, but kind of nice kind of soft eyes with right. the high cheekbones yeah. and the square jaw. Yeah. I don't know how it was drawn, but I just thought, well, hello. Yeah. You can have that one. <laughs> and then I still thought that they were rubbish, to yeah. be honest. Oh, yeah. So what was the one that you, like, when, because, you know, you were a good mum and you would read the shit that, uh, so you could have a chat to me about it. And when was the first? Well, so I knew what you were reading too. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. But also, um, what was the... What was the first one that you read where you suddenly thought, oh, hang on a minute, this might, this is actually good? Swamp Thing. Yeah, Alan Moore. Yeah. Alan Moore was my first favourite, the first one I took an interest in. Yeah. Well, I've only got three that I really like. Yeah. So it's Alan Moore, Grant Morrison. Yeah. And... Um, Neil Gaiman? Neil Gaiman. And so... Do you know what? Uh, well, okay, comics-wise, it was Swamp Thing because that was in the soft comic format. Yeah, single issues. Yes. Yep. Is that what you call them? Yeah. Okay. When I realised there was an art form to it, I mean, there always was one right. to a degree, but I just – I didn't see it in snotty pants. (laughs) Well, you know, but you just... That's just boy crap. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there was a lot of crap. And plus, you know, when when we'd go to the comic shop, I used to go in and just look (laughs) at all the blokes and watch them while you went through the racks to see if there were any paedophiles or anyone in there. And, of course, (laughs) that was completely unfair because they weren't. They were just nerds. Right. Not allowed out in the open back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) They had to hide. (laughs) Yeah. But um, so that was the that was the first of the single issue stuff. Yeah. But any genuine interest and and I love Swamp Thing. Yeah. Because um, you know I'm I'm an animal rights activist right. and I and I always loved the forest when people would take the piss out of hippies and oh they're tree huggers I'd think. Well, I'm not a hippie, but well, I love trees. What's yeah. wrong with hugging trees? At least you bloody care about things. And now look who's laughing. Yeah. But anyway. Well, none of us because the world's on fire. But, there we uh, go. <laughs> but you were right. <laughs> the hippies would be going, I told you, man. Um, I digress. So I loved it because yeah. it was about nature and trees talking. Because I always used to say, trees communicate. Yeah. And I don't know how. Anyway, bloody blast. So that was that. That's why I loved that one. But then it wasn't until graphic novels came out. And then I looked at the graphic novels. Um, 
I think my favourite is still Sandman. Oh, right, yep. I love Sandman. Yep. Because um, I love death. I yes. thought she was cool. Yeah. Um, but when the graphic novels came out and you had like Bill Schenkovich's artwork and whatnot, and then I thought, oh, here's an art form. And so then I started looking at um, Neil Gaiman and Grant Morrison and, yeah, they're the three that I'd be interested in. Yeah. And then, so then when you'd say, oh, here's blah, 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 have a read, instead of me going, oh, God, <laughs> on the inside, I'd go, oh, yeah, I'll have a look at that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, Animal Man. Oh, yeah, for sure. I loved Animal Man. Yeah. Yeah, of course, that was completely in your wheelhouse with, uh, you know, with him being a vegetarian and uh, fighting animal rights and then, and then it went... And then he broke the fourth wall right. and it was like, bloody hell, who knew they'd do that in comics? So, yeah. Yeah. I think that was a really good era, to be honest. I think you're right. Because that was a breakthrough era. Yeah. You had them blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden they changed and those three writers and to be fair, Frank Miller in America. Oh yeah. Um so the four of them, but the 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 two Poms and the Scott were my favourites. But I like Frank's work as well. He used Shinkovich, didn't he? Yeah, you're thinking specifically of Electro Assassin, which was the Am series. I? Yeah, yeah. That's um where he drew. About we on. had Sin City too, didn't we? Oh yeah, we? that was just uh, that was Frank Miller and just his artwork. Yeah. Yeah. That was him doing oh, and Arkham Asylum. Oh, that's Dave McKean who did the. Oh, for God's sake! Yeah, yeah that's did right. the covers to the Sandman. And, yeah, and all of that. Yeah, but, uh, but that so was that pre- era. Yeah, totally changed comics. Yeah, completely changed comics. And I thought, oh my God, if you're going to get into stuff, thank God you're into the <laughs> the new realm of it. Yeah, no, I feel like I came along at uh, exactly the right time to be getting exactly serious the about right stuff. Time. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was the uh, it was the equivalent of the sixties with the British uh, invasion, where like you know, even with the music in the sixties, you had really good lesser known British bands, and like you think about some of the other British writers that were coming through, like uh, Pete Milligan and uh, Jamie Delano, who were. Coming over with the... Um... Oh, it's Jamie Delano, English. Yeah, oh, thought, yeah. Oh, with a name like Delano, I thought he was American. Yeah, okay. yeah. So they were, <coughs> you know, so you had writers like that. Right. You know, coming through as well. And then, uh, and you enjoyed Watchmen when you read it, didn't you? Oh, yes, I did. I love yeah. Watchmen. Um, because it was anarchic, I thought. Yeah. Oh, I love anarchy. And uh, uh, and Alan Moore's very much a, an anarchist. He... he believes in it, like in the pure sense of it yeah. as well. Oh, yes. I think, um, well, let's face it, he wouldn't be interested in sitting down and talking to me and I don't even care about that. But <laughs> if we play the game yeah. that he sat down to talk to me, yeah. he would find we have more in common than he realised. I think he'd probably <clears throat> be quite happy to talk to you as long as you didn't ask him what did you think of the Watchmen TV series, knowing full well that he did not watch it. Yeah, but you know, what a sh- When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Time because you should. Well, yeah, no. I think he'd really enjoy it. Look, it is, uh, I saw a thing that his uh, daughter wrote which was saying, you know, that he loved the industry, so well, he loved the art form so much and then the industry just burnt him out and he just got ripped off so much that he just can't. You know, he's done. He just can't look in, in that direction at any of that yeah, stuff anymore. I get and it that. makes sense. But it's a shame because I think if he could see um, the love and affection and respect that Lindelof's put in, mm. you know. And it's funny, you know, because um, as you know, I wasn't a fan of Lost. Yeah. Um, I know the... I know the time and effort he put into it. Yeah. He worked so hard on that. But you had me watch a couple of episodes and I just really didn't give a crap about any of the characters. <laughs> I couldn't have given a shit whether they got you off like the Saeed? island. I didn't give a shit about anybody. The only person, or the only entity on the island that I gave a crap about the was the dog. dog. Yeah. Please, please let the dog not die. Yeah. And that was all I cared about. So, I didn't like Lost. Right. However, then came The Leftovers. Right. That I loved. Right. And now Watchmen that I just love, I don't know as much or more, but certainly equal to Leftovers. And I think, well, good on you, Damon, because if you hadn't made Lost, you'd never have gotten to these two. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's... uh, I'm absolutely positive that whether... I couldn't care less whether everyone in the world loved it or hated it. Well, that would be sad for him. But um, it's irrelevant as to whether it was good, bad, indifferent and what anyone thought of it. He had to make Lost to get to um, Watchmen and Leftovers. So whether I like Lost or not, I appreciate the fact that it existed so that I could get the Leftovers (laughs) and Watchmen. (laughs) The... um uh, it's it's a bit un- it, you you can't really compare the two because they're very uh, like well, I guess you can compare them a little bit but the um, do do you have a preference or is it still too what, soon what? between the leftovers and Watchmen? Oh. One's three seasons compared to one and yeah. you know they're very different. I don't know that I use. Oh, I don't know that I can. Yeah, because. Well, I t- all right. I don't think I can because I know Watchmen. I might right. not have known this story, right? But I know Watchmen. That's already in my in my head. Yeah, and in my past, the leftovers was just completely original and new. Yeah, that doesn't make it better, but it just means I can't pick because right. they're both awesome. Did you have a favourite character from the leftovers? Is that a bit hard as well? I did like Theroux. He was really, he was very sweet. Yeah. And he was incredibly brave. Yeah. He had to do some shit. Yeah. 
could have been so embarrassing and he was so brave with it and it paid off. Like everything from having to sing karaoke to (laughs) putting his dick on a thing to open up (laughs) secret doors. Oh, bless his cotton socks. Nice ass. Um, And Carrie, Carrie Coon. Oh, um, yeah. That was, yeah. Um, I don't think, I think those two. Yeah. I know they're the leads, but I did love them. Yeah. Yeah. When, um, when so you know when uh, Watchmen was coming out, and so uh, I think you were like me that uh, you knew that it was a lot of the team, like you you trusted Lindelof, you enjoyed uh, the leftovers, you knew there was some of the team coming over. Uh, you know you're a you're a Trent Reznor fan as well. Bloody oath. Was it, was that your last mosh Nine Inch Nails at the big day out when you were in your fifties? It might have been. The one where I almost went under. Yeah. <laughs> Christ. Because it had been raining and the ground was so muddy. Yeah. And I was right up the front but right in the middle. Yeah. And those guys could not give a rat's ass if I'd gone under. Yeah. It would have just been get the old mole out the road quick. Yeah. You're ruining my view. Um, and it was pure ass that about four people over from me yeah. was a guy that I'd worked with once who was this big strapping young lad. Yeah. And when I did a bit of a whoopsie, <laughs> he he leant through the guys and just kind of picked me up. <laughs> and, of course, I turned around and went, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you for years. Thanks for the save. And then we went back into yeah. Moshing again. And yeah. I think that might have been in Starfuckers. I'm not sure. Starfuckers Incorporated. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> but that was a hell of a show, that one. Oh, I yeah. I love that. So, so, in the lead up to the series, you were feeling pretty confident that it was going to be good. Yes. So, I'm wondering... Well, ho- certainly hopeful. Certainly hopeful. Yeah. So... Now, if it had come after Lost, I might have been scared. Right. But coming after Leftovers, I was very confident. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, when in the first episode did you start to feel, ah, oh, no, I was right because <laughs> it was because uh, I talked to you after the first episode. Was it uh, was it early on with the scenes of the Tulsa riot? Because you knew about that, didn't you? Did, did you no, know for that? everything that I know, th- that was really interesting. Right, I know so much about American Black history. And Native American too. I've spent a lot of time um, on Native American history, as you know. Lots of lots of books and things. My lovely red cloud. Yep. Um, But for all that I know and knew, I had never heard a word of that. Oh, really? I was really taken by surprise. Right. And. I immediately went to the computer to look it up yeah, and was like, how the hell did I not know about this with all the research I've done over the years? Yeah. And then found out, oh, guess what? Nobody else knew either. Right. Except black people, of course. Right. But it's like even Damon didn't know and they feel shame, which I understand, shame and guilt. I don't because I'm not American. But that's fine because we got enough of our own with our Aborigines. Like, yeah, every country's got it. Yeah. Um, well, all, all white people should feel it in some way or another. Yeah. Um, so I was just shocked that I didn't know. No shame, no guilt, but lots of shock. 
So I found that riveting. I think just the first thing with, you know, with little Will sitting in the theatre with Mum playing the oh, organ, playing the organ and, yeah. um, watching bass reeds and, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was immediately intrigued. Oh, I don't know where we're going from here, but what sort of a start is this? Right. So I was completely there. Um, you know, and then when he finds the baby and it's like just the two of them in the field and it's like, well, what's going to happen to these kids? Yeah. And what a lot of pressure on a little six-year-old. Right. Who's comforting her and right. virtually saying, I'll look after you. So, yeah, I was hooked from there. I yeah. didn't even know what the <laughs> hell was going to happen or where we were going. Right. But it's like, I'm here for the journey. Yeah. And then as soon as I saw Regina yeah. and and in her sister night outfit, it's like, oh, that's one tough woman. I love her. <laughs> I love her. Well, you loved her in uh, The Leftovers as well, I right? I love like, her in that. I think uh, – I think – and Regina Margaret. and Carrie Coon getting the uh, jumping up and down on the trampoline. Oh, that was awesome. To the Wu-Tang Clan. It yeah, was yeah, like yeah. a yeah. seminal moment. Yeah, yeah. Hilarious. Uh, it, it must feel uh, – I've said this on the podcast for everyone, uh, for the guys that I hosted with. and um, For a genre that you have sometimes experienced and sometimes enjoyed – uh, I wondered if this was the first time that you could watch the genre and and sit there and actually feel in some ways it was for you. In that, you know, it wasn't it wasn't all male characters experiencing oh, no. something. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like even something like I know that you're a fan of uh, the Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy and I know you really enjoyed Black Panther, but this was I'm a fan of everything, Nolan's. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and I mean, you know, Dunkirk's all blokes. Yeah. How could it not be? Yeah. But so what? It's a universal story and it was genius and brilliant. So yeah. I don't have to watch, women, you know. No. It's not like if a, if something hasn't got a woman in, it's like, how can you make that? And it's like, it's about the war, guys. Yeah. The chicks weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But but this is but you're but actually this, seeing yeah. well y- you've got Regina you've got Lady True yeah. <laughs> um, like there are no weak lily livered stupid little women in this no Jean Smart Jean Smart's awesome yeah. <laughs> she's awesome well, uh, there's been a it's been a good year you, you take into account oh you haven't watched you haven't finished Legion have you. No. Now, oh. I watched the first two series. Yeah, I think there's only one left. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to go there. You don't know? I'm not saying I won't, but I found the first two series enjoyable mm. but hard going. Yes. So, I preferred Mr. Robot and I, you know, I just love every second of Mr. Robot. Right. And I'd rather have Mr. Robot than Legion. Yeah. Which is a non sequitur in as much as they don't even relate to each other. Yeah. But uh, I found Legion tough going. And I think you have to be a comic reader to follow that properly. Okay, yeah. I yep. reckon. And I reckon it's the fact that I've never been a proper comic reader. I've delved into the world of it, but mm. I'm, I don't belong in that world. And so I used to sit there and, and I'd watch it nodding to myself thinking, oh, that's really good. And if the back of my head said, <laughs> what happened? I'd think, oh, I wouldn't have a bloody clue. Yeah. <laughs> but no idea. I just, it was well filmed. Yeah. 
good photography and I like the acting. Yeah. What's happening? I don't know. I don't know. Well, no uh, idea. But Mr. Robot. You oh, really enjoy. I, I know what's going on. Uh, well, let's let's go. Uh, I thought we'll just go into the characters rather than speak broadly about the series. Uh, we might as well go into uh, Angela uh, and uh, how. What 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 aspect of Angela was uh, that uh, appealed to you most? Apart from being super tough, I think her independence. Because I right. think her independence led to everything that followed. Yeah. If she wasn't capable of looking after herself without relying on other people to lean on or look after her, yeah. she would never have followed the path she did or been capable of following it. So I think her independence first. And, of course, that came from being alone in the orphanage. And, right. You know, poor little bug of finally meets her grandmother and she's going to go home with her. Oh, 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 she's dead. Yeah. Um. So then she's back again. It's like, poor little bugger. She just learned to be self-reliant. Right. So I liked that and I admired that and I think everything was a corollary from that. It just followed. That, that had to be the basis and the foundation for everything else to be built on. Yeah. And Regina King is uh, up there with... Uh Justin Theroux in that um, really good at swearing. Yeah, well, so is Jean Smart. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, of course, we've watched her in Fargo as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's amazing. Um, was, was Angela your favourite character? Or is that a bit, is that once again a bit difficult? Um, yeah, I think she was. Yeah. What about um, what about Wade as Looking Glass? God, I love him. Yeah. Well, I love him in everything I see him. In. Yeah. He's an awesome actor and seems like a lovely guy. And just the mirror face thing cracked the shits out of me. It's oh. like, uh, I just mirror guy. Mirror guy. I just <laughs> always. I only ever think of him as mirror guy. Yeah. I think he's my he's my second favorite character. Yeah. Gene would be third. I like Petey. Oh yeah, Agent Petey, God. who was who was Lube he Man? Didn't, yeah, he didn't get enough, did he? So let's no. hope we get another series, and he's um, he's better utilized. Well, we'll uh, 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 well, we might as well get to these. And her eldest son. Oh yeah, Topher. Yeah, Topher. Something oh, interesting a, going on there. Oh, I like Topher. Yeah, I like Topher. They're setting him up. Well, there was um, and Bjorn. Yeah. There was something. There was something strangely serene about him, wasn't there? Even when he, he was had a he had a a certain calm quality, a bit yeah. like Jackie Brown, really. Oh he yeah, he had that. He had that. Um, yeah, he had a very, very calm, quiet persona, but he didn't miss a trick. His eyes and ears were everywhere. Yeah. So while he was being quiet and calm, he was taking it all in. Yeah. Were you upset when it turned out that um, Don Johnson really was an arsehole? <laughs> and his wife? Uh, oh, Frances Fisher. Yeah. Now, she might have been a bloody bitch. Yeah. But she was a good, strong character too. Yeah. Because I don't think there's any proof in this, but my gut told me that, yes, he was an arsehole, 
but he was kind of weak and, and, and malleable and easily manipulated. And I think she was the bitch manipulating him. Oh, really? She was, well, yeah, that right. was my gut yeah. feeling, that in that marriage, she wore the pants and right. she was she was running all that. So, although well, she was she pretty was, strong at the end, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. So, although she was horrible, yeah. I loved her. Like, yeah. I love Frances Fisher's portrayal. Yeah. So, you had... Um, you had four grown women plus little Bian had her own little kind of strength, didn't yeah. she? There was lots of... And then Topher was kind of androgynous, beautiful little face that wasn't feminine but certainly not masculine. And then with his long hair, he was... Yeah, he was a fascinating kid. It's funny to see a... Uh, 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 once again, this genre and one of you know you have a confrontation between Francis Fisher and Jean Smart. You know, I loved that because yeah. they must. I would assume they know each other well. Right, they're they're the same vintage era. They must have come across each other. Yeah. in casting rooms, possibly been in films together. Yeah, um, they must know each other. Um, and I thought it was wonderful to see the two of them. You would think that if you're even going to be bothered putting an older woman into a prominent part in the show, there's only space for one. Right, yeah. And you've got two of them. Yeah. I thought that was fabulous. And you asked me a question and I haven't answered it properly. What the hell was it? Uh, I, I, was, I was just asking you um, about uh, which, which characters you enjoyed. And, no, uh, there was something specific. Oh. Drat, I've lost it. That's okay. Let um, me come back. Oh, you asked about Don Johnson. Oh, yes. That's what I didn't answer because I was too busy talking about her. Um, I like Don Johnson. So it was a shame he wasn't in it more. I was only sad from a a personal point of view. But I I found it quite easy to believe the character. Yeah. Because usually um, with the KKK, they were... um, usually people of so-called high standing in the community. Mm, yeah. It would be civic leaders and police and maybe the shop owners and, you know, it, it was uh, – you, you'd get your little hayseeds involved as well as the lackey men, mm. but the top guys were always the business leaders. Yeah. You, did you know that there was a, a, a Superman radio serial in the 50s that had a uh, – huge effect on kind of limiting the KKK's uh, reach because this writer put a whole lot of their secrets into the radio play as Clark Kent was trying to take down. And so it kind of made him look a bit stupid and helped neuter them a little bit. Oh, no, I like that. So, you know, everything, you know, this whole series, you know, keeps coming back to the Superman mythology and... uh, uh, you know, and uh, finding new ways into it, etc. And then that's a that's a little moment in time where Superman versus the KKK was a thing. Yeah. Well, sometimes things that are really frightening and dangerous um, can be nullified by making them look ridiculous. Because if people are going to laugh at them and not take them seriously, right, it's harder for them to terrify. Right. Unless they come and shoot your guts out for <laughs> laughing at them. But well, yeah, yeah. There's, there's always There's that. an option. That is an option. Yeah. Um, the, uh, th- there's been a little bit of criticism online about uh, Lady True not being uh, fleshed out enough as a character. 
uh, and sort of saying that, you know, you, you, they delved into, uh, you know, racism from an African-American point of view, but didn't really go into the uh, imperialism of uh, what occurred with America taking over Vietnam. I don't know how you feel about that. I kind of think that I, I really love the character of Lady True and I just feel like that's something that can be unpacked later. Like I don't think I don't think a series can be everything. Oh, there was so much going on. Right. You would have needed 24 episodes to do it all in series 1. Right. So I think say they bring a, a you get a series 2. Yeah. Regardless of where they choose to go with the storyline and regardless of what characters they choose to either continue with or new ones that they bring in, it's still going to be in that same world where America won Vietnam and it's the 51st state. Why can't it go back Right. later on? Yeah. Well, you don't have to do everything now. Yeah. That's like playing your whole hand all in one fell swoop, isn't it? Yeah. Otherwise, you'd do everything in the first episode and you'd go, look, we don't need another episode. Right. So... Um, I think that's crap. I don't think that w- there was anything racist in that. And I don't think they had time because this was Angela's story. Right. Um, and I think that could all be done another time. And I think she got some fabulous moments. I mean, her, her death almost... Um, you know, when the squid went through her palm, that's like a stigmata. Yeah. And as you're looking at her, you can see on the other side, you know, stuff with Jesus on the cross. I mean, yeah. she got some beautiful little crap. Oh, even even when she goes to the, the Clark's farm and turns the egg timer over. And so much of that. Yeah. She got some beautiful stuff. Yeah. And she's a great actress. Yeah. I've seen her in a few things. and uh, You pa- saw Hong Chao in Downsizing. We were just talking oh, about that. I thought she was magnificent in that. Yeah. I loved her. Yeah. Um, when you think the film's going one way and all of a sudden she comes in and turns at 180 and it's like, I didn't think we were going here. And then you go on the journey. I thought she was fabulous. Yeah. So I got a lot of time for her. Funnily enough, when we were watching The Wrecking Crew last night and I was talking about how gorgeous Na- Nancy Kwan was, yeah. that could have been if that's like a if Nancy Kwan role, role yeah. if she was around now. Right. Um, or if, yeah. Yeah, that, I see what you mean. That's definitely a Nancy Kwan role. And I, I think she's fabulous and uh, how much more? Well, you'd have to do another three episodes. It would have had to have been a twelve-episode yeah series for them to spend time in Vietnam to go through everything of hers. Yeah, I think. Look, Lindelof said that he wished they'd had more time to yeah. get to it, but he kind of they kind of worked out story-wise that once we they knew. hit a certain point, now you have to get to the end, and that's why it's that's why it's a weird nine episodes. Yeah. Oh no! I, and I would rather a tight story than yes, have one so that's would I. Then it's like you answered all my questions, but mm. you rambled for two episodes. You yeah. should have been tighter. Well, they made it tight, yeah, and they made it perfect. And what little bits they didn't have time to put in, well, that's all right. Yeah, 
If it's that important, they'll find a way to bring it in again. Well, you know, as Lindelof has said, you know, maybe, you know, he, I think he said if someone else wants to do a series, it's like it's not his property. No, exactly. So, you know, he was saying uh, Ryan Coogler. Imagine getting Ryan Coogler. <gasps> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would be amazing. Yeah. Um, the uh, who was the favorite? Who was your favorite character in the in the graphic novel? Do you remember? I always felt like you were. Uh, I always thought you found Doctor Manhattan kind of sad. Yeah, I think he was. Certainly wasn't Rorschach. No. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I think it was Doctor Manhattan. Did you like I him in this? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, – now, I'm only doing a comparative thing in as much as a person so far apart that they have to be alone. Mm-hmm. But like Superman. Oh, yeah. Because, see, I've, I've always felt sorry for Superman. You're a Batman fan. Oh, no, I like Superman as well. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I don't dislike Batman. Yeah. I, but that's just a rich guy who gets to go and live out his fantasy of revenge because mummy and daddy were killed. Yeah. So Batman's like, yeah, whatever. But Superman is like this poor bugger who doesn't relate to anybody or anything, right. has to hide who he is yep. um, and is always alone in his head, if nothing else. Right. He's always alone. He always has to be separate to a degree. Um, and I feel Dr. Manhattan's the same. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right as well. I, r- I really loved his uh, the uh, interpretation of him in this, and I love that we never saw him when he was John Osterman, looking yeah. like John Osterman. We saw him when he was uh, portrayed by Yaya, but not as... Uh, uh, you know, there was a there was a sense of mystery, and that was done deliberately because yeah. uh, Lindelof said, you know, you read the graphic novel, you have a sense of who he is, so let's you keep that. Yeah, we're not going to con- you know conflict with your thoughts, but here's our version. And the stuff in Wales was that was filmed in Wales was just bloody hilarious. Oh yeah, well I was going to ask you. That, so I know that you've been. A, uh, did you first see uh, before we get to that one, uh, Lewis Gossett Jr.? Did you? first see him in Roots, was that right? No, no. Uh, He's been an actor for a long, long time. Yeah. But he was just called Lou Gossett. Yeah. And then after he did Roots, it had such a profound – well, I I believe that all of the actors were profoundly affected by – by the miniseries Roots. Yeah. And he was so profoundly affected thinking of his um, father and grandfather that he thought, I am a junior and I've just called myself Lou Gossett Mm. and I should pay more of an homage to my father. Mm. And so as soon as Roots was finished, he was no longer Lou Gossett. He became Lewis Gossett Jr. Right. Which, of course, is technically incorrect because with that spelling, it's Louis. Right. Because it's French. Right. And Louis, if you really want to call it Louis, is L-E-W-I-S. But, right. you know, that's that's being a pedant. <laughs> that's being an annoying pedant. So we won't be pedantic and we'll say he is now Louis Gossett Jr. Right. And that was an homage to his father and all right. the men who came before him. And he was pretty great in this. He was fabulous. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I knew something was going on when he put his hand in the boiling water to get his egg out. Right. Funnily enough. Right. 
and the fact that he was over a hundred years old, and I thought, yeah, I think there's something going on here. Yeah, being and kept around, that kind of was a. It seems like there was a, well, a sense of uh, him fulfilling his destiny and being yeah. kept a bit longer. I would, I would never believe anything that anyone told me mm. that was different to the fact that when, um, when he was visited. Mm to say this is what's going to happen, this is your granddaughter and you've got to be in the theatre mm. on that day for the grandchildren. There's no way on earth that I would believe that he didn't imbue him with some of his powers so that he could stay alive yeah. and so he could put his hand in boiling water to get his googies out. Yeah, well, he did, you know, he did at one point go across the road and get the eggs and come back he you know did. so there was there was definitely i like that there's a bit of ambiguity to the series i feel like it it it, it answered everything that had to be answered but it it never specifically though there wasn't a clunky scene where he said well, and then john gave me his powers yeah we'll see that's the thing americans have been brought up yeah to be spoon fed they're not stupid but they have been spoon-fed by executives right. over the like over many decades, so that now they can't help. But most of them want to be spoon-fed because right. they don't know any different. One of the things I love about Damon Lindelof, apart from the fact that he's um, very intelligent, very well-read, and is just a lovely guy. Um, one of the things I love about him is that he's not like a typical American. He loves ambiguity. Right. He. How many interviews have we heard with him where he said, I don't want everything spelt out. Yeah. I like to think for myself. I like you to leave it open-ended so that I can work it out for myself or even if we come to to different answers. You know, like with Carrie Coon, did she or didn't oh, she? Oh, yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. I love that too. And I really appreciate that he doesn't spoon feed. Yeah, there's been, uh, there's been. Uh, I feel like HBO's been the big, uh, <gasps> you know, the oh important. You know, like there were great shows that you know you had your, uh, you know, your, your Saint Elsewhere's and your Hill Street Blues and your NYPD Blues and stuff like that. But once HBO started getting into it, you know, that's when we started getting TV series that did kind of, you know, delve HBO into. Has been the big game changer. Yeah. It has been a massive game changer for quality intellectual yeah. TV shows. Yeah. And then, you know, then you were getting stuff like uh, then uh, it meant, uh, you know, you started getting things like um, Mad Men as well and Breaking Bad from other companies, you know, and uh, other stations. Um, and uh, you've never really been a Jeremy Irons fan but or, or not a big fan. But you loved him in this. Well, he's such a he's such a scenery chewer. Yeah. And in principle I love that he chews the scenery. Yeah. But well I mean I've seen him in lots of stuff like the French Lieutenant's Woman, uh, with Meryl Streep way back. Um I've seen him in a lot of stuff. And the TV show, The Borgers, I don't know how they ended up with any sets by the time he'd finished chewing them to bits, yeah. playing the Pope. But he was magnificent. Yeah. But he's always played a certain type of person. And sometimes I would like the character and sometimes I wouldn't. Always admired the acting. Right. But in this, he's just bloody hilarious. Yeah. And he's, he's scenery chewing to a little 
to a little degree in some scenes, but for the most part, he just looks like he's having fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's I just think having so a good time. Yeah, and a, a a man of his experience and his ilk in the acting world to allow people to smash tomatoes in his face. Yeah, it's just bloody <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed all of his bits. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the one episode where he didn't appear, he, it was, he couldn't appear in that because it, there was no space for his storyline to, to make an appearance. But I did miss him. <laughs> I oh, enjoyed no. all those The episode moments. was yeah. still awesome. Yeah. But at the end, it's like, oh, I didn't get my five minutes of yeah. Jeremy yeah. being uh, a dickhead. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, all right, well, let's uh, let's get close. We're really close to finishing, but um, uh, just oh, a I few don't more. know. I've got the microphone now. Oh, you're ready to go. This I, is this is it. I don't know. No, we can keep going. That's fine. No, I just, no, uh, no, no, no. I don't want to be like like the rest others. of us. <laughs> the rest of us go on and on. I think the last episode we did for the TV series went nearly. Went mm. almost three times as long. It's but only because the first time you ever got on stage mm. and you were shitting bricks about going up there, mm. and when you came off, yeah, and it was like had to go, and it's like I felt the power of the mic. Yes, I and did. So that's why I'm just saying. Oh, I don't know. I've got the microphone now. Maybe this it's familial it. power. Maybe we'll have to start your own podcast. Oh, can you imagine me just banging on with all my strong opinions? And I don't yeah, know, I can would, actually. There would be no listeners. No, the you know you would oh, no you would definitely know. have listeners, and um, and haters. Oh, you would definitely have haters. Yeah, I don't need that shit. No, but you would definitely have the listeners. That's why I don't have social media so that I don't invite haters. Oh. I can have haters just walking down the street. Right. I don't need to sit here and deliberately invite them. You'd be, um, you know, you'd be a left-wing shot drop. But, um, but, uh, Hang on, but, what's but, a, but you'd what's also the be opposite of a jock. Uh, I don't know. Like what is that? the feminine. Oh yeah, I don't know. So I'd be a, a left-wing shock. <laughs> mm, I don't know what I'd oh, be. No, we'll have to have a think about that. We'll have to workshop mm. that. Mm. Um. But you would definitely have listeners and you would definitely have people who'd be really into you and then some of those people would be so into you they'd really annoy you uh, because they'd be into you for the wrong reasons. Anyway, I can see how this I is all going to play out. I don't even understand what words you meant by that. No, do anyway. you, no you, you know people who – there would be people that would agree with you and then would annoy you. Do you know what I mean? Because, right. because they but would – But you said for the wrong reasons and I don't Yeah, I like, like you know, there's – so you would say – Trying to think of a quick example, but uh, you could say um, uh, you didn't. You, you know what? I uh, I really enjoyed the new Tarantino movie, but I didn't like the actor that they got to play Steve McQueen. And then someone would say, "Yeah, and it's bullshit because that didn't happen at the end." So I agree with you. That was that oh, movie right, was bullshit. Right. And oh, you'd yeah. say, "No, nah, the the ending was great. I'm just saying they got the wrong actor to yes. play Steve McQueen." Oh yeah, oh, that's no. what I mean. I've got enough people. Giving me the shits in email. I don't yeah, I know. Like, oh, yeah, I know that. When I send something out and then they write back to comment on it and it's like, what the hell are you bloody talking about? That's not even what I sent. That's what I mean. That's what I was saying. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I, w- I would not cope with that. By the way, I must say I did love the film and the only thing I didn't like and approve of was right. the Bruce Lee stuff. Right. And 
that was mainly because I know idiots out there will believe that that really happened. Right. And I went to Bruce and Brandon Lee's um, burial sites when I was in Seattle. Right. So it's like I don't. Don't turn people ag- – like if someone turns against you with the truth, that's one thing. Right. But don't turn people against him with something that that's just part of a once upon a time film. Right. Where people with half a brain understand it's once upon a time and it's okay and others go, I don't like Bruce Lee because he blows. It's like, no, that's not true, you well, idiots. Yeah. So that shitted me off. Right. Because it's like, well, what'd you put that in for? And now you've sullied his name. But everything else was. But it was in there because he was the. I get, it, he I, was. Uh, he did all the stunt work for the I Wrecking know, Crew. I know. And I it's used also, to watch him on Long Street. Yeah, but it's a. But I, I still think that scene hey, is. That's Cliff's reminiscing about why he lost that job, and I, I don't think that I don't I think know. that actually happened the way Rick Dalton wasn't in. The Great Escape. I know. Right. I. But do you think every person who's seen the film knows that? Yeah, but can you make films for dickheads? But nevertheless, dickheads will then go, I don't like Bruce Lee, and it's like, well, then I want to go and smash them with your heavy microphone. Oh, well, look, it is a heavy microphone. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that would people say that they dislike him from that? I don't know. I'm, pre- I'm making a presumption. Right. I'm not saying you're incorrect. I'm just saying... You know, like it's to to me not putting something like that in because I love Bruce and Brandon. No, I know that, and I I don't want his name to be sullied. I get that, but I'm just saying, you know, what's one of the poor old Shannon? You know, Shannon's left. She lost her father. She lost her brother. I don't want Shannon to be upset. No, of course not. But at the same time, no, I I totally get that. Well, but (laughs) at the because because you're pals. But at the same time, the what's what's one of the things that drives you? crazy and you were just saying you know what what do you love about this series is that it doesn't dumb it down so you can't no you're right yeah but but can't anyway i'd like i what did you anyway i i don't disagree with what and what the hell was damien lewis oh yeah i know Steve i know McQueen, it's like for, for everyone <laughs> listening damien lewis makes my mum physically sick and she loves steve mcqueen and having him play steve mcqueen when i found that out i called you and i could barely breathe <laughs> i was laughing so hard because it was it was just the worst oh, thing ever very dare you yeah it was great like if you pick and i mean he's a red oh yeah anyway <laughs> let's not go there let's not go there um, so, uh, just a few more things. Um, was there a, was there an episode that stood out to you, uh, or did you just love it all equally? Like, and I, the reason I ask is every time I sort of think of one episode, I always think, yeah, you know what? I really love the episode that was Gene Smart on the phone for the whole episode. Oh, I did like that. But I also loved the Looking Glass episode with him being taken into the fun house. And you know, oh, getting yeah. his origin story, mirror guy. But then, I, mirror guy. guy but, to me. but then the the trip back through the memories of nostalgia oh, was yeah, great. Yeah. And did you get the giggles when you were watching it? And suddenly, Trent Reznor's doing a piano version of Life on Mars, and thinking, "Can this be any better for me?" <laughs> I, know. I know it's like a wet dream for you, wasn't it? <laughs> It's like, oh, bloody Earl Justin's going to be gone all over himself. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for the imagery, folks. Um, but was there an episode that stood out? 
I loved all of those and I think I loved the series equally because there was something magical and powerful and fabulous in every episode. Yeah. But I don't know that you can go past like we know it's bullshit. But right. if you imagine just play the game that it would be real. Yeah. Oh Poppy, yeah. what the matter with that pussy? Um <laughs> I don't think you can go past what it must have been like for Angela to feel what her grandfather oh, went through. Yeah, yeah. So I think we hear stories yeah. of our relatives and their past and it yeah. can be powerful. Or maybe you see a photo that's powerful or for those who were lucky enough back in the day, you had to be rich to have a uh, a, a movie camera. Yeah. Um, so if you, you might have home films, but for her to actually live it and experience it, I think that was possibly the most powerful. Yeah. Doesn't oh, – it's hard to ma- – yeah. That I was think pretty that amazing. Like um, I think that the um, – uh, in, in the lead up to that episode, I think that Alan Seppenwall said that episode six was like – International Assassin in The Leftovers, like a real game changer. Yeah. And I, I yep. think he was right. Yep, yep. I like Seven too. Oh, I yeah. liked it. Like, oh, it's so difficult to yep. choose, isn't it, when you really love a series? Yeah. Um, sometimes you only like a series, but you love a particular episode. Oh, yeah. But when you love the whole series, right? it's pretty yeah, it's pretty difficult. Uh, would, what do you, what do you think happened at the end? Oh, I reckon she walked. Yeah. I don't think Carrie Coon <laughs> did her bit that in her story, but right. I think I think Angela walked. Yeah. Because I don't think Carrie Coon lied lied either. No. I think she believed that, but yes. I, but, you know, it's within the realms of possibility because there's nothing within the realms of possibility of that show. Yeah, for sure. So, but um, I th- I reckon she walked. Yeah. Listen, if you're going to make yourself gag so badly by swallowing a bloody raw egg, yeah. you deserve to be able to walk on water. <laughs> and uh, in, in a way, you know, I think there was that great moment where her, her grandfather says, you know, he was a good man but he could have... He could have done more. He could have done more. Absolutely. Because he was so passive. It's like, come on, man, get your balls out and do something. Well, uh, I never really thought about it in the graphic novel either, but that's what I loved about the series where it kind of made me look back on something that I loved and didn't contradict it but made me think about it more. And that was, pardon the mild pun, and the thing is, is that, yeah, John is just a nice guy who's a bit, like he doesn't have a sense of humour or an imagination. No. And here, well, look, here's the, here's the, um, it's not a quandary, mm. but it's like I'm going to contradict myself. Okay. So it pissed me because they're both sitting there in a linear fashion and they're both true. Mm. It pissed me off that he didn't do more when he had such powers. Mm. But by the same token, usually people with, powers that great 
are aggressive. Mm. And so I kind of like the fact that someone who's quiet and shy and retiring gets the powers. Because mm. yeah. the powers didn't then make him aggressive, yeah. did they? He was still quiet and shy and retiring. He did aggressive things, but he did that because he thought that's what people expected of him, which yeah. is interesting. But it wasn't his choice. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't part of his makeup. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm saying, well, that pissed me off, and yet I quite like it. Yeah, for sure. Because it's different. Yeah. It's a different approach. When have you ever seen a powerful creature or being that's just yeah, passive? Go, yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely an interesting uh, uh, view. And I, I kind of, uh, I like the idea that, um, you know, she'll go and do some good. Like, you know, but maybe she'll, you know, she's also a flawed character. Like, everyone's flawed. Maybe she'll make some mistakes as well. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, do you want a sequel? Well, I'm caught between, yes, or well, the short answer is yes. However... If this is all there is, I am more than content. Yeah. Because I thought it was so wonderful, we can just leave it there and I'll be content. Yeah. But if you give me more, it's like chocolate. I've had enough. <laughs> I've had enough dark chocolate. Yeah. There isn't any more. Yeah. That's fine. I'm satiated. And then you bring out another block and it's like, bloody hell, I've got to go again. Yeah. So I would definitely go again quite happily if they do more. But depends who does it. Right. If Damon did it, oh, I'd yeah. be there in a heartbeat. Yeah. If it was anybody lesser, that could be a bit scary. Yeah. <coughs> and I wouldn't want it sullied. You don't I want season want two memory. of True, De- True Detective? Oh, that was shit. Yeah. <laughs> that broke my heart. <laughs> I know, because you love Colin Taylor Farrell and a, Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> Colin Farrell, I just love him so much. And I was so excited that he and Taylor yeah. were going to be in it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then it was crap, and it was like, how dare you? Uh, they must have felt so cheated. Yeah, you know, because the third season was good. Because if I feel cheated, yeah, how cheated are they? Yeah, exactly. But the third season was good. So don't do a second season if you're going to do um, True Detective. Okay, so if we're, if we're going to do a sequel, and we'll finish on this. I'm going to give you some. I'm going to give you some options. On what the sequel could be, in 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 your world, so would you want a detective show that revolves around Laurie and Looking Glass t- taking down other vigilantes? Uh, do you want a, a a series that focuses on True and the Vietnam side of the story? Do you want to see what happens with Angela as Doctor Manhattan? Do you want to do you just want a cop show with the Red Scare and Pirate Jenny? Or do you want the continuing adventures of Lube Man? You can have combinations of all of these as well. I would take everything. I would take all of that. I don't see why it can't exist yeah, right. parallel. Yeah. I, I might leave Vietnam out if it was difficult to run the other four. Right. And include that. Yeah. But I... I'd be interested to go into I'd that. I'd love though. to see Mirror Guy. <laughs> it's just Mirror, Mirror Guy. Because yeah. so bloody funny. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see him and Jean working together. Yeah. I want to see what happens with Angela. 
Um, yeah, I yeah I love um, Red Scare and Pirate Jenny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, any of it, any of it, really. Any of it. I don't have a. I don't think I have a um, a favourite of. Um, Out of all of that. No, no, I'd be happy with any or all. Okay. That's fair enough. I think that's uh, look. Um. Uh, by the way, I agree totally with you. Uh, I'm quite happy if we never get uh, another episode, and if if this team decides that they'd like to give us more, then it was like with the leftovers. You got the first season, and it wasn't the first season. It was like, oh, well, that's that. Yes. And then the second season came along, and it was better. And it was like, oh, we got two seasons of that. That was fantastic. Lucky us. And then we and got then the we third. got the third, and it was like, <gasps> yeah, it was like a beautiful trilogy that just rounded it out. Yeah. So, so if they had the thoughts. Yeah. And um, if anybody's interested, I've just finished watching the first series of his Dark Materials and I've loved that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you thought it was pretty true to the books? I thought it was very true visual. Uh, well, yes, in the storyline it followed the books well. Yeah. But um, the visuals that I had when I was reading the books um, came to life on the screen. Yeah. So... Um, I thought there was only one miscasting, but that didn't ruin the whole series. Yeah. I loved it. And the the little demons, the CGI demons, was all oh, so cute. I just wanted to pick them up and give them a good old yeah. squish. And it was the uh, – it's a little girl from um, Logan, Logan as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was also – you enjoyed that a lot. I remember the – <laughs> I remember taking you to the cinema and the first time that she went nuts with her claws, uh, I felt like you were like, oh <laughs> – I felt like I was vindicated. It's like, oh, that's what I've lived in my head my whole life. <laughs> and I'm seeing someone on the screen actually doing it. Mm. Watchmen gave you, uh, you know, uh, Laurie. And uh, Logan gave you what you could have been as a kid. Uh, any any last thoughts for everyone? Um, no, when's this going out? It'll, It'll go up after. in... Uh, no, 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 it'll just be before New Year's Eve. Oh, Okay. Oh, well, they've already eaten all their turkeys and stuff for Christmas, so I was going to say just back off on the meat. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, those poor little buggers wanted to live too. Yeah, they, right. They didn't want to be slaughtered just to live in your gut and then be shut down the toilet. So, you know, let animals live. That's my. That's great. That, you know what? That's great. I'm going to leave it there. Thanks to Mum for not only joining me for her first podcast experience, but all the Mum facts that she found throughout the running of the HBO series. I told you that she ended uh, exactly the way she wanted to end the podcast. And I am I do think that uh, if she had a podcast of her own, I think she would have an audience. There'd be some people that wouldn't agree with her, but goodness... Uh, I think the people that would listen to it and get into it would, there, there would be a little cult. There would be a little cult that would uh, pop up around her. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I thought she was great. Um, I, was, I was a bit worried that she'd be a little bit uh, monosyllabic to start off. But, um, you know, picked up the mic. I've never even seen her hold a microphone before. And uh, she, she really ran with it. So... Uh, uh, I was glad that she could uh, join me for that podcast that we recorded on Christmas Day as well. That's right. Us atheists don't give a fuck about the birth of Jesus, and um, that's how we celebrate. That, and I showed her uh, Jackie Brown, which she'd never seen before, which she really loved, and uh, a few other things. But anyway, so uh, a 
a big thank you to my mum, a big thank you to all of my guests for giving up their time to join me in breaking down and celebrating these two great works of art. Uh, I'd really like to give a big shout out to everyone in Australia who listens. Uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with a lot of really scary climate stuff at the moment. And I, I know there's a lot on people's minds, so uh, taking the time out to uh, listen to the podcast is really appreciated. And to everyone overseas as well. Like, I've, I've had so many nice messages from people all over the world. And, you know, you, you, you had heaps of options to find after shows. And I don't take it lightly that you joined in on this one. Um, if you go to the Facebook page, I, I'd love to know why you chose this one. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's always a little bit fascinating to me and uh, all of you people overseas who have uh, taken the time, well, th- thank you. Thank you very much and uh, I hope you uh, uh, you know, stick around and see where we go next. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a nice rating on whichever platform you use. I know that there are people who are just starting to watch the series, like I know in Australia there are people who don't have Foxtel, so now you can get it on iTunes or other ways that I wouldn't encourage because I don't want to get in trouble from the government, but you know how to do it. Uh, If you know anyone who is in that boat or that pirate boat, as it were, who's just starting the series, uh, please recommend that they listen to this podcast while they're enjoying the show. And I, I say that in the sense, don't do it so much for me. Do it because you want to make them slow down and enjoy the show properly. You know how I feel about enjoying a show. Like this is this is too good. Don't binge it. Like don't don't binge it and then and then say, oh yeah, that was a bit overwhelming. Like take your time and maybe we can get them to slow down if they have a listen to the podcast in between and encourage them to check out PDpedia as well. Uh, now I'm aiming to have a one-off special Big Squid podcast that will come out on January 8th. Uh, Hoovian's work has gotten really busy and I'm still working on my shows, but I'm aiming for January 8th and the one-off is going to be a deep dive on David Bowie's final album, Black Star. There's a lot going on with that album. Uh, I went to the UK and I saw uh, the play Lazarus with Michael C. Hall and uh, I thought just changing it up a little bit, uh, if you have listened to that album or if you haven't listened to that album uh, I'll go through some of the stuff that I've learned about it over the years and I'm going to intertwine it with uh, a personal story uh, that uh, maybe some of you may have seen me perform live but if not uh, I am going to uh, incorporate the the stand-up that I did on the night that I found out that uh, Bowie had died and uh, I uh, I won't go into it too much now, but I thought I would make that as part of this uh, little deep dive into the album and uh, all the all the different layers and thoughts that uh, the great man put into his last work. So uh, I'm aiming for that on January 8th. Then Alexi, Ben and I, and, and maybe some extra guests, but mainly those two lads, uh, well... We we had so much fun making this podcast, and we were working out uh, 
what we could do next. And so what we're going to do for the second season of Big Squid is we're going to cover season one of The Leftovers. So if you haven't watched it before or are thinking you'd like to watch it again, we're, we're going to help guide you through that with new thoughts, new segments and new ideas. And uh, at the moment, we're just juggling schedules. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on at the start of the year, but uh, we really want to get into season one. It felt like the natural extension of the Watchmen uh, world in the sense that uh, the people who worked on that worked on the leftovers, uh, well, a lot of them. And uh, if you haven't watched it, I think I genuinely think it's a masterpiece and it's funny. And the great thing is Alexi and I have seen it and, and Ben hasn't. So we'll be getting some new insights from Ben as he sees it uh, for the first time. So I'll hopefully have an idea of when the second season will start in time for the Bowie Big Squid episode. Uh, And so I'll be able to give you an idea at the end of that Bowie Squid episode, maybe. Anyway, uh, thanks once again for all your time. I I really hope you're well. Uh, I hope uh, everyone that you're surrounded by is in good spirits, and you're getting excited for year 2020. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you then. So, yeah, what a, what a crazy few months. But I've really enjoyed them. And uh, thank you for being a part of it. Until then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.